0: First, let me say what an honour it is to be asked to give this first Bishara lecture. I first came across Bishara in 1974, which is an astonishing 36 years ago, and I regard my subsequent decision to do an intensive six-month course at the Bishara School, which I embarked on in 1977, as the pivotal decision of my life, which opened up for me entirely new possibilities those which had been presented to me during my upbringing and previous education. Being asked to speak today has demanded looking back over the intervening period, which is now more than half a lifetime, and trying to say something coherent about what difference it makes to be a long-term student of Bishara, not merely to do a course or two, or study a text or two, or do a retreat or two. But to live one's life with the kind of or kind of orientation towards unity which is one which one is introduced to when one comes under the umbrella of Bashara. God willing, something of interest has transpired and if it hasn't, I do beg your indulgence. <laughs> and I also beg your indulgence for my terrible cold. And I hope that I'm going to get through this lecture without fits of coughing, but I armed with water and cough sweets, and so hopefully <coughs> we will manage. There are many themes which came to mind um, when I was asked to give this talk, and I think it's an indicative of the nature of this education, that almost anything could be the subject of a Bishara lecture. And in the end, I decided on educating the heart, because it seems to me to encapsulate something quite essential about what Bishara is, and also In my present work as a support tutor for students with specific learning difficulties, I do a lot of work with young people who are working with what we might call the ordinary education system. And living in Oxford, I'm privileged to do much of my work with students at the university there, where this ordinary type of study happens at the very highest level. So I'm brought into close proximity every working day with the issue of education, what it is, what it's for, what it can do for us as human beings. So I feel I do have some small basis for talking about it. Our ordinary education concentrates almost exclusively upon developing our intellects, our rational faculty, and this is something which was established on fairly sound foundations from medieval times, based upon the philosophy and ethos of the ancient Greeks, who emphasise the supremacy of the rational faculty in human beings. There are other aspects of education recognised by our contemporary system. Physical education, for instance, expressed by emphasis on sports in schools, or social education, or musical education, but these have a much lower status. You don't get into Oxford just because you are a good athlete, although it has to say it does help to be good at rowing. Um, or because you're a good violinist. The kinds of skills that are developed there are the ability to think clearly, apply universal principles to particular situations, analyse, make judgments, evaluate outcomes. And there can be no intrinsic argument with all this. On the contrary, these are valuable skills which we need as human beings. And as a human race in the scientific age, we very much need people who've developed these skills to a high degree. However, it is a quite specific kind of knowledge which intrinsically involves breaking the world into parts in order to understand it. Whether this is by physically identifying the different parts of, say, the human body or the solar system in order to describe the way in which they work together, or breaking down thought into components so that we can develop an argument or a proof which proceeds step by step, or whether in our post-Descartesian era it is more essentially a matter of making a division between ourselves and the external world in order to come to an objective view. By contrast, all the great traditions of wisdom and spirituality have maintained that we have another cognitive faculty which is capable of seeing things of a whole, of seeing the underlying truth of things directly, not just through inference. We used on the blurb advertising this talk a saying attributed to Plato, there is an eye of the soul which is more precious far than 10,000 bodily eyes, for by it alone truth is seen, unquote. But there are equally people from all the traditions who would seem to be referring to this possibility of direct insight into realities which elude the intellect. For instance, Richard of St. Victor, the 12th century Christian theologian, said, The outer sense alone perceives visible things, and the eye of the heart alone sees the invisible." whilst the great leader of the native Indian tradition, Black Elk, who lived into the 20th century, said, quote, The heart is a sanctuary at the centre of which there is a little space within which the great spirit dwells, and this is the eye. This is the eye of Wakatanka by which he sees all things and through which we see him, Unquote. Of course, Although the words heart and eye recur in all these quotes, it does not follow that all these people understand this faculty in exactly the same way. And interreligious studies is a field fraught with difficulty once one starts getting down to detail. Therefore, in this talk, I'm going to stick with what I know and discuss this faculty according to the mystical tradition of Islam and particularly as it's expounded in the works of the person who is the subject of my special knowledge, the 12th century philosopher and mystic Muhyiddin ibn Arabi, who is also the, 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 um, whose works form the core curriculum of the Bishara school. He refers to this faculty just as the heart. Hence my title, Educating the Heart, has this specific reference. Heart is not used in the sense of the physical organ, or even as being the seat of emotion or romantic love, but refers to this other faculty by which we directly perceive the underlying unity of all things. Henry Corban refers to it as a subtle organ, similar to the chakras of the Hindu tradition, saying that it is that which quote, produces true knowledge, comprehensive intuition, the gnosis of God and the divine mysteries an organ of perception which is both experience and intimate taste. Despite it being so well known in traditional systems of knowledge, this faculty of the heart is not widely recognised in our society today, or at least where it has been recognised because I will show, I hope towards the end of the talk, that we do have some cultural precedents. It is not acknowledged as being really important at the level of policy making in the way that we set up our educational systems or our governments or our businesses, etc. But in this lecture, I'm going to argue that it is important for several reasons. One is that it's clear from all the traditions that this is the highest form of knowledge, higher than our rational faculty. And therefore, in neglecting it, we are failing to realize our full humanity to achieve our full potential. Another is that in our present age, we are very much in need of a unifying perspective as we begin to realise just how interconnected everything is, whether this be the financial markets or the world's ecosystem. Our very survival as a human race depends upon us developing much more global, joined-up modes of thinking. An intellect alone cannot deliver this, because as we've already pointed out, the intellect is intrinsically divisive in its mode of operation. In fact, it's quite possible to argue that we are in the mess we are in in the first place, because we have relied upon it, particularly on sciences based upon rational thinking alone too much, but we won't be going there today. The operation of the heart is very different in some ways from the operation of the intellect. And in what follows, I'm sometimes going to contrast these two modes in order to illustrate my point. This has a validity because in some ways the heart and the intellect are at odds with each other and demand different things from us. But I do not intend to imply by making this contrast that there is an absolute distinction between them or that we have to choose one or the other in terms of a total life choice. On the contrary, the best situation is where both faculties operate fully and in harmony in recognition that they are, in reality, complementary. This can be very clear when one considers really great intellectual achievements, such as the inception of Einstein's theory of relativity, where intuition and reason went hand in hand in fact, it was Einstein who remarked that, quote, science without religion is lame, religion without science is blind, unquote. Therefore, in asserting the need to educate our hearts with the same energy and intensity that we devote to educating our mind, the idea is not that we should abandon rationality, but rather that we are correcting a present imbalance in which we give theories and procedures based upon rational thinking alone, an inappropriate level of control over ourselves, our lives, and our society. Excuse me. So what, therefore, are the differences between the knowledge of the heart and the knowledge of the intellect? One is that the heart sees spiritual realities directly as self-evident truths, which do not require the kind of logical support that intellectual arguments do. This has been so well put by Jalaluddin Rumi that I thought that rather than entering into a lengthy exposition, I would just read you this short extract from the Math Nui in Nicholson's slightly old fashioned but still very beautiful translation. Quote. Since wisdom is the faithful believer's stray camel, he knows it with certainty from whomsoever he has heard it. And when he finds himself absolutely in front of it, how should there be doubt? How should he mistake himself? When you say to a thirsty man, make haste, there is water in the cup, take it at once, will the thirsty man say, this is mere assertion, Go from my side, O oh, pretender. Or else produce some testimony and proof that this is of aqueous kind and consists of the water that runs from a spring. Or suppose a mother cries to her suckling babe, Come, I am your mother, listen, my child. Will the babe say, O oh, mother, bring me some proof so that it may take comfort in your milk? When in the heart of the community there is spiritual perception from God the face and the voice of the prophet are as an evidentiary miracle. When the prophet utters a cry from without, the soul of the community falls to worship within, because never in the world will, never in the world will the soul's ear have heard from anyone a cry of the same kind. That soul in exile, by immediate perception of the wondrous voice, has heard from God's tongue. I am near. So, just to comment on this, I don't believe that these lines need to be interpreted within the context of a formal religion. Rumi was writing within a well established wisdom tradition in which the prophets were not just regarded as bringers of particular religions and external religious laws, but were also, in fact, predominantly understood to be messengers sent to call people back to the remembrance of their origin, which they, like people in exile, they have forgotten. That is, they were sent to address people's interior reality, their heart and soul, and to call them back to the truth, which, if they have the heart to open to hearing it, they recognize instantly as being their own reality. In this sense, we do not have to interpret what Rumi says within a theistic context, but take what he is saying as a general statement about anything which speaks to our hearts and which we recognize directly as being true. Indeed, it is a very important principle even within the Islamic tradition where the revelation given through prophecy is central that anyone or anything in the world can be a messenger or an agent for this kind of awakening. In our contemporary context, we are fortunate that we have available to us the wisdom from many different traditions. In fact, this seems to be one of the characteristics of our particular era. And I'm sure that everyone here will have some taste of finding this kinds of resonance with texts or poetry or music or whatever from a variety of different cultures. It's also possible, or perhaps more inevitable, that the things of the natural world can can be messengers to us, as we shall see later in the talk. Secondly, the poem makes it clear that the knowledge of the heart is like remembrance of something already known, not of something acquired. And the taste and quality of it, which Rumi expresses so beautifully, beautifully, is this awakening to something which we already love and long for, like a parent perhaps who reappears after many years of separation and who invokes in us all those feelings of intimacy and familiarity which we had forgotten? This idea of knowledge being remembered also goes back to Plato, who developed in the Meno dialogue. And I have discovered in the course of writing this talk that it has a name which I'm going to attempt to pronounce. It's called anamnesis. And this motif of remembrance and return is a central one, as I'm sure most of you will know, in all spiritual traditions. In this quality of direct vision, there are clearly in some ways radical disagreements between what we see, perceive, understand through the faculty of the heart and what we perceive through the intellect. This can manifest in seemingly quite rational fields like mathematics, where there are some people, and I have taught some children like this, who can just see the solutions to mathematical problems and can write down the answer immediately. And this is because there is a reality to numbers. They are not just mental constructs that we make up for convenience. You might think these children show a certain kind of natural brilliance which we would want to encourage, But in fact, it is not acceptable in our present educational system to do this. To get the marks, you have to show the steps by which you you took to reach your answer. So these children have to put this ability aside and learn to do it in the other, more usual way. And after a while, they tend to lose the capacity for this kind of direct vision. At the higher levels of operation in mathematics in particular, but also in other sciences, this ability can be more appreciated. And there are many cases where it has given us some of our most comprehensive and abstract theories. I think, I think of cases in particular of Einstein already mentioned and the extraordinary mathematician Ramanujan, who had a very high level of this kind of direct perception of numbers and the relationship between them. And some of his theories set down in the early 20th centuries, which all good mathematicians acknowledge as self-evidently true, have not yet been proved in the normal way. And mathematicians here know there are a number of these mathematical theories which nobody has yet managed to logically prove. But usually what happens with really well-established scientific theory is a combination of the two approaches where the results of a great flash of insight is then backed up or developed by the application of reason, and the result is then proved according to logic, etc. In these cases, one can see that the unitive approach of the heart and the discriminative approach of the intellect are two routes to the same end. But mathematics is a very specific and relatively trivial example of the situation. When it comes to approaching great existential questions, such as, does God exist? Who are we? What is our purpose on earth? There are no set answers. Ibn Arabi, who was, of course, a great exponent of the vision of the heart, describes a conversation on this subject, which he had soon after coming out of a very eventful retreat when he was still in his teens, with the great Andalusian philosopher Ibn Rushd or Averroes as he is known in the west Averroes asked him whether he thought that the truths perceived through mystical intuition and those deduced by the speculative intellect were the same and Ibn Arabi replied yes and then he said no expressing very succinctly the notion we shall come to later is that the ability sustain paradox is a characteristic of the knowledge of the heart. By the know, he indicated that there are truths and realities which can be perceived by the heart, which are inaccessible to the intellect when it operates by itself. And as such, he, he along with all the great spiritual writers, regards the, high at the heart as the highest faculty which can penetrate further, deeper, and more comprehensively into reality. Averroes and Ibn Arabi had their conversation in the context of a fundamentally shared worldview. In, in his time, there was no real disagreement between the philosophers and scientists and the mystics about the existence of a divinity or the reality of the spiritual realms or even about the basic form and constitution of the cosmos. The conversation was about the means by which knowledge is acquired and the level and degree of it. In our times, the situation is very different, and there is radical difference between the understanding be given by our science and the spiritual traditions in almost every respect, about the origin of a universe, about our own origin, about constitution, about the very purpose of of, of human life. And many scientists are very definite in their rejection of a spiritual perspective and maintain that a belief in the existence of a god or of a spiritual dimension is just a childish, dogmatic, or irrational nonsense. But in doing this, they assume that the views of the people who adhere to faith or a spiritual perspective are commensurate with their own intellectually-based worldviews. But in fact it is much better looked upon as a difference between people who adhere to the truths of the heart and those who operate only with reason, and for whom, for reasons it's not for me to fathom, the truths given through the heart just do not seem to be visible. Therefore, the predominance in our culture of scientifically based views presents quite a challenge to those whose heart has been opened up and who wish to develop this way of seeing and being further. There are not many obvious ways of doing this. It is not our social norm, and there are many discouraging influences. So it is really necessary to point out that there is an alternative way of understanding the world. In this respect, the work of people like Ibn Arabi, who express a profound spiritual knowledge, in ways which are compatible with rational principles are extremely important because they show that this alternative view can be coherent and intelligible and not just a subjective aberration. I'm presently studying Ibn Arabi's autobiographical work with a group of students in Oxford. And one of the things which has struck me on this read-through of the book is the great emphasis he places upon the ability to argue the case for mystical intuition against the doubters within his own contemporary community using the tools of analysis and argument. And in this, I think, he is very much in tune with the Buddhist tradition whose spiritual training also develops skills in argument and debate alongside contemplation and the practice of compassion. But perhaps more important is that the work of Ibn Arabi and again, I want to repeat that I'm talking, speaking of him because I've studied his work to some extent, not because I think that such things do not exist within other traditions. The work of People like Ibn Arabi presents us with a whole world view based upon the unity of vision of the heart, a view which encompasses all aspects of ourselves and human life and all aspects of the world, Such an exposition is very helpful to us because the spiritual path can be considered in one way as a process of progressively opening up the heart, but in another way it can be seen as the establishing of an already existing point of contact such that it becomes the constant and irrefutable fact of our existence. This is because there must have been some impulse which drew us to undertake this path in the first place. It does not have to be a grand vision like Saint Paul on the road to Damascus, but there does have to have been some initial intimation or indication in the heart, some hearing of a call to return. But at the beginning, this intimation may not be fully seen or understood and it is probably not continuously present in terms of experience. It can be more like a a glimpse. Therefore, in looking back over my 30-odd years with Bushara, it seems to me that the real process which goes on in spiritual education could best be described as a kind of reorientating of the person, so that what was initially a mere hint or glimpse becomes the central motivating force and focal point of one's life. This process has a different trajectory for each person, but there are clearly, in terms of what one can draw from the the experience of human history, certain required elements, one of which is the need to make sense of the process one is undergoing and to put it into a proper context, and the other is the practice of orientating oneself around this knowledge so that all the faculties and the myriad different elements of one's constitution cohere around it so that over time one becomes unified and consistently orientated towards this truth. Bulent Rauf, who was so important in establishing Bashara, used to say that the measure of a person's spiritual development is the constancy of their awareness. And the older I grow, the more I understand what a profound insight this is. So I'm going to talk now about each of these essential elements in turn. First a bit of theory, then a bit of practice. So theory. For Ibn Arabi, the main characteristic of the heart is that it is intrinsically and indefatigably, incorrigibly unifying in its action. This is not only a matter of direct vision we have just spoken about, which is intrinsically holistic and dense, such that a moment of such insight can take a lifetime to understand or express, and even then perhaps it is done imperfectly. For Ibn Arabi, the heart is also the place where things which are considered by the intellect to be opposite and mutually exclusive are witnessed as being simultaneously true. Therefore, as I have already intimated, it is a place where the answer to a question can be simultaneously yes and no, not just in the sense that is meant in the academic world, which is the stuff of a million essays, where the answer yes and no means in some respects it's true and in some respects not. Ibn Arabi's answer to Averroes was more complex. He said, yes, no. Between the yes and the no, spirits take wing from their matter and necks are separated from their bodies, Indicating that the resolution of the matter requires one to move beyond the standpoint of the speculative intellect as it appears in a particular material context. Such as within our own body, into another, more mysterious realm accessible only to the spirit. For Ibn Arabi, the underlying unity of all such sets of opposites can be directly perceived. So there can be perception of the identity of the states of both high and low, here and there, inside and outside, me and you. And this he explains, explains in inverted commas, as Elizabeth's already intimated, as an indication of the fact that there is in reality only one being, one existence, which is the essence and origin of all the separate things and states which we perceived in ourselves and the world. Therefore, we can say that this single reality is, is the essence of something which is here, And at the same time, it is the essence of something which is there. Therefore, in one sense, there is unity or identity between the two things. And in another sense, there is difference. This may seem perplexing, but actually this is not so familiar to us in the present day. Because we have been given a very clear example of such phenomenon from quantum mechanics where an electron or photon can appear either as a discrete solid-like particle thing or as a wave and this has long been postulated when we about to Einstein again but since the 1990s this has been witnessable phenomena as scientists have succeeded in setting up a real experiment based on the Einstein Podolsky Rosen thought experiment which they call a metaphysical experiment In this, they demonstrate that it is really true. In this, they demonstrate that it is really true that when you put up a particle counter, the photon manifests as a particle. And if you put up a set of slits, it manifests as a wave. I was privileged to know in my science journalist days one of the scientists involved in these experiments. He was a follower of Rudolf Steiner, and he was very clear that this phenomenon is a kind of modern-day icon, meaning that it is something that we should contemplate. If we really take it on board and focus on what is before our eyes rather than just getting on with solving the equations in a rather mechanical way that people do, then we begin to see... That what is demanded is we develop is that we develop this different faculty of perception which can accommodate paradox and mystery, and that does, does not demand that something should be either this or that, but can be simultaneously in both states. This understanding of the dual nature of matter and many other phenomena in quantum mechanics of course, radically undermines the classical Descartesian view, which is still the foundation of our scientific enterprise even a 100 years after quantum mechanics came onto the scene. In this, there is a very sharp division between our interior, our intellect, which observers understand, and the exterior world, which is other. This assumes that these two realms have independent existences. The world out there is not dependent on any way upon us, and when we are not observing it, it has its own independent life. Well, life, perhaps not quite the right word given the Descartes' perspective, we should say carries on by itself, and we can just drop in now and again and look at what is happening. But quantum mechanics demonstrates that things are much more complex and interwoven, we cannot in reality separate ourselves from the world. The subject which constitutes the observer and the object which constitutes the observed are deeply connected at the level of identity and locked into a relationship of mutual cause and effect, witnessing and response in ever-changing configurations. And so this brings me to the third major characteristic of the heart that I want to bring out today, that its function is to perceive meaning. The intellect, in making a primary division between the observer and the world, self and other, objectifies the external world and sees a multiplicity of separate things, whereas the heart whose fundamental knowledge is of single identity, seems sameness, correspondences and relationships. Ibn Arabi's world is one in which it is not just one thing, like an electron appearing in two different ways, depending on how we approach it. It is a matter of one global encompassing being who appears in a multiplicity of ways as everything that we see. It is a cosmic view in which the observer and the observed, the self and the other, are locked in a relationship of mutual dependence and reflection, where everything that we think of as being outside of ourselves has a connection or a correspondence to something inside us and is therefore meaningful to us, meaning that it shows us something about ourselves, or it reveals some aspect of beauty or order, which reminds us of our reality and our origin. This is a world which is very far from inanimate and self-subsistent, but alive, ever-changing, always engaged in the task of communicating truth to us, One of my favourite lines from Ibn Arabi's great Opus Magnus, the the Meccan Revelation, says that, Nothing walks in the cosmos without walking as a messenger with a message. Even the worms in their movements are rushing with a message to those who can understand it. He calls this a high knowledge, and one can see that it illustrates well what I said earlier about the process of spiritual education or education in the heart, of the heart, which in this aspect can be described as being one through which a person moves from the state of receiving a call to return through a glimpse in one particular form, to a state in which they are able to perceive everything, both inside and outside of themselves, as a messenger from their beloved, reminding them of who they really are. A central Quranic verse for the Islamic tradition, not only Ibn Arabi, through which they depict this very highest state of realization, is, quote, wherever you turn, there is the face of God, unquote. Seen like this, it is clear that the heart is essentially a passive and receptive faculty. Its function is to receive impressions, whether from the deep, mysterious realms of our inner being or from the external world, and unify them by recognizing them as meanings which point to a single reality. And this is a process in which there is, intrinsically, by definition, no expected outcome, no end result. It is an open-ended process done entirely for its own sake. By contrast, the intellect is a very active faculty, which, as I said above, observes things and is constantly engaged in categorising and observes things and is actively engaged in categorising them, sorting them, manipulating them, etc., it is not devoid of unifying action, as it too wishes to understand the universe as a whole. But its tendency is to create unity by looking at the external connections between things so that they are tied together in a mechanistic way as a great structure, even when considering living things such as plants and animals or the human body. And in its modus operandi, it is fundamentally quantitative, that is concerned with measurement and value. I am always being told now by people, or by books which come out and conferences I attend, that we as a human civilization are now moving beyond a Descartesian perspective, and that new ideas from quantum mechanics and chaos theory and from ecology, etc., are leading us to a more holistic paradigm which which embody, one would hope, a more heart-centered perspective. But I have to say that my on-the-ground experience, the evidence of daily life, would tend to indicate the contrary, that we are continuing to move further and further in the direction of unmitigated rationality in the form of quantification as far as things like education, health and government go. Everything now is weighed and measured and given a value, often in terms of money. In my own field of education in the last 20 years, the aspect of measurement and evaluation has really come more and more to the fore. There is now no question of open-ended investigation. Every teaching session has to have an expected outcome and must be evaluated against that. And everything is seen in in utilitarian terms, that is, according to how useful it will be to us. And this has significant consequences, even for basic skills like numeracy and literacy, which I know from my own work. Despite vast resources being devoted to teaching these skills, there are still many people who just cannot learn them and this number seems to be growing rather than diminishing. At the same time, reading and maths are understood more and more to be mere mechanistic operations, or they are placed in a utilitarian context with no intrinsic meaning attached to them. But this is a very narrow approach. For Ibn Arabi, the very letters of the alphabet were spiritual realities, pregnant with meaning and symbolism. He had a great vision once while travelling in Algeria in which he saw all the letters of the alphabet, Arabic alphabet as celestial intelligences and experienced mystical union with each one of them, witnessing the particularity of its messengership. And he saw the vast potential of symbolism and beauty which their combination into words, letters, and sentences could express. From this moment, he describes, poetry just flowed out of him without any effort. Similarly, numbers have been seen by all the wisdom traditions as containing the very secrets of the universe. The Greeks were not exploring the properties of irrational numbers or geometric shapes in order to compute their cash flows. They were trying to, they were trying to uncover sacred realities. The people I have already mentioned, who can just do certain sorts of math problems, have this kind of feel for the realm of numbers. They often see them in terms of colors, patterns, shapes, etc. And the manager, the great Hindu mathematician, we've already mentioned. Is quite explicit that he saw numbers as configurations of the arms of, the, of Shiva in the realm of meaning. And without this dimension, some kind of conceived correspondence with inner reality, many people just cannot get a handle on reading or maths because they just cannot operate in such a mechanistic mode. In fact, as I said at the beginning, Without this kind of connection to meanings, no one can operate at their full potential, even if they appear to quite cope, cope quite well with the tasks they are presented with by our education system or our society. And certainly, we are unlikely to solve the very large problems we face in the world without bringing to bear all our faculties in the right kind of harmonious balance. There is a saying from the Hindu tradition, which I came across while writing this talk, which says, the mind becomes clear and serene when the qualities of the heart are cultivated. Quote. Finally then, <clears throat> in our last few minutes, how do we cultivate these qualities? Much has already been said, fortunately, else we would be here all night but two things that it would be good to just briefly mention. One is that the heart is essentially a receptive faculty and it appears, opens, flourishes, or whatever you want to put it, in stillness and silence. Its action is contemplation as opposed to activity. And in this it is pragmatically in very sharp contrast to the way that we operate when we are dominated by the intellectual mode. Therefore, the fundamental practice for the education of the heart is withdrawal from our normal modes of operation, from actively seeking, actively organizing, actively understanding, etc. And and in doing this, to create the, the creation of a contemplative space, where we can learn to be receptive to or to witness the messages that we are, in fact, constantly receiving. For Ibn Arabi, it is not the outer form of the practice which matters, so I'm not going to go into this at all, but the inner orientation. So this withdrawal could be physical in terms of actual periods of retreat from the world, Or it could be shorter periods of time set aside each day for meditation or contemplation. Or it could be a completely interior practice of being able to withdraw into an interior empty space, even though outwardly in the midst of life. And within the Islamic tradition, this last was considered to be the highest level of achievement, being the state of those who the Quran mentions as for whom... Buying and selling does not distract from the remembrance of God. Secondly, alongside this setting up of a contemplative space is the practice of learning to tolerate uncertainty and lack of definition. And it seems to me that we do have precedence for this in our own Western tradition, in Keats, and in, in that it seems to me to be very much what Keats refers to when he talks about negative capability, which he defined as, quote, the state of being, quote, in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact or reason, unquote. An attitude which was later expressed very well by another poet, Rilke, in his letters to a young poet, as follows, quote, I would like to beg you, dear sir, as well as you can, to have patience with everything that is unsolved in your heart and try to to cherish the questions themselves, like closed rooms and like books written in a strange tongue. Do not search now for the answers which cannot be given you because you could not live them. It is a matter of living everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, one distant day, live right into the answer, Unquote. And as it is good to remind ourselves, and have we got time? Yeah? That these things are not unknown to our modern European tradition. I thought it would be nice to end with another quote from the Romantic poets, which seems to be in tune with what has been said in this lecture. And these are Wordsworth's famous lines from Tinton Abbey, in which he describes the development of the poetic sensibility as, quote, that serene and blessed mood in which the affection gently leads us on until the breath of this corporeal frame and even the motion of our human blood almost suspended we are laid asleep in body and become a living soul. While with an eye made quiet by power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things.